Hello and welcome to The Rabbit Hole, the Definitive Develops podcast, live from the Boogie Down Bronx. I'm your host, Michael Nunez, our co-host today, Dave Anderson, and our producer, William Jeffries, and our special guest, Sandy Metz. Great to have you. Uh, Sandy, thanks for taking the time uh, to join us on the podcast. How are you today? I'm good. It's a treat to be here. We were just discussing or wanted to discuss some uh, going down the avenue of explaining functional versus OO and some of the paradigms and the thoughts of that you would have to think when you are using those different types of languages. And you're a specialist in OO. You've written a lot of books, uh, especially Pooter, widely known. So let's just, uh, anyone has any thoughts on the conversation? I'm not going first. <laughs> but you're the one with the most interesting things to say, Sandy. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I've written a lot of good OO and some really bad functional code. And so I don't really know that. Well, um, so you thought that it was worth experimenting with, right? I mean, you, it sounds like you've invested oh, yeah. time in fooling around with functional programming to see, you know, just to double check and make sure we're right. <laughs> you can't. Okay. Would you describe yourself as a functional programmer? No. No. I, I mean, here's the thing. The fun. Now I feel like I'm going to get tweeted at about this. Oh. Hot well, takes is hot takes with Sandy No, let me just let me ask you guys. You tell me. Like, if you had to use the adjective smug to describe a language of a style of programming, would you apply it to procedural, OO, or functional? Oh, functional, functional. Yeah. Those monads. Your words, oh not Actually, mine. Like, uh, <laughs> so I, one of my favorite things is like whenever I'm trying to learn a new language, if inevitably you end up on Stack Overflow. You see what the community looks like. You yeah. know, community, very bubbly, friendly, nice. Python community, you know, inclusive, but a little bit opinionated. Scala community. Oh my God, like writing dissertations in response. It's like, oh, I just really? You how I can like make my function better. And you've told me like three paragraphs about what a monad is. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and so, why is that? Is it something about the style, of the, the way the language needs to be written that draws people who are a certain category of people or. I guess there's like, like certain Explain rules. that. There's certain rules, right? Like, mm-hmm. function must be pure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a pure <laughs> function. There are no side effects to a pure function. It has some inputs. It has some outputs. Given those inputs, the output is always the same. Uh, so it's like nice to test. I, I, that's that's my oh, yeah. attraction to functional programming. It's like it's like I oh, definitely it's so bite sized. It's so bite sized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but I mean, like, it's a pitch for it, right? But like, what 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 is it about the functional programming community that? tends to attract people who might be a little bit condescending toward OO people. I don't know from experience because I don't think I've ever stacked overflowed any uh, Elixir related projects, but I do think that it may come from where the language derived. So would we say the same for Java developers that they're not like you? I think Java can be also kind of mean in the community versus Ruby. Like, is there any thoughts on that? I mean, Java is so big. It feels like every kind of programmer in the world is out there somewhere in Java land. Right. Right. Yeah. And same thing with JavaScript. It's hard to say that it's it's a community. It just mm-hmm. it is a thing that exists, and we all have it, mm-hmm. whether we want it or not. <laughs> I, yeah. 
I mean, it was interesting that you mentioned Elixir as an example, right? Because Elixir came, like Jose Valim is a super nice guy and they came out of Rubyland. I mean, in some ways, just like every time, like every business you go into, like all the rank and file, the, the culture of a business comes from the top. Right. They, whoever started it and was the boss and that has all the power, they hired people like them and they hired people like them. Right. In the end, you get either a bunch of really nice people or a bunch of jerks. And certainly the Elixir community reflects his personal style. Which. Right. So. So then it's well, that's not so it's not. You know, I mean, that's a counter argument to my thought that it was something about the thinking style that functional requires of you that draws a certain kind of people. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And I think it does, uh, you mentioned before, Elixir does have uh, a lot of Ruby. I think people who are interested in functional programming that know Ruby would dip their toes in Elixir, I think, before uh, other programming language because it alludes to the similarities of the languages between the two. So are you suggesting it's Ruby's influence that makes the Elixir people be so nice? Yeah, I think so. I think it's the influence because I think Scala, because Java could have all sorts of different um, personalities, but Scala derives from like Java, I guess I'm going to say. And maybe they just, you know, they, they get angry as they use more Scala, maybe. I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm not a Scala engineer myself. We all get in trouble here. (laughs) (laughs) This is just all of us like jumping in front of well, I mean, there's that whole thing. Like, I think that idea, I don't, I don't know who said it. It might have been the notion that there's a whole bunch of rules and functional. And certainly, in a, it's not true for every dynamically typed OO language, but certainly in Ruby, the whole sort of bottom line is there's lots of ways to do things. And, and you know, my joking answer to every question I ever get about OO is it depends. Yep. And I don't think that's a thing that the functional people would say, right? There's no, it depends. It doesn't depend with a monad. Either it's a monad or it's not a monad. <laughs> I don't know what a monad is. Right so I'm not asking to explain uh-huh. it. But. So here's why I wanted to look at functional, right? I got intrigued by the idea of immutability. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because whether or not one would use the word smug to describe a whole category of programmers, despite that, like we can see, we can recognize a good idea when we see it. And that, right, the value of immutability is huge. And I'm like my OO, like now my first goal, every time I create a new object, every time I'd like to think of creating a class so that I can have objects, I want the objects I create to be immutable. I'm going to treat creation as free and I'm going to not mutate the objects I make. And that doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean I don't get to do OO because I, I want that, you know, I, like the functional, the functional languages seem to me, and again, this is my, I don't know, right? So I could be totally wrong about this. Like they, they seem to want, it's like, you know, pipes and filters, data is passed around to rigid functions, which are pure, right? To me, the OO applications are like, I'm, I'm creating a play, I'm creating characters, I'm casting a, a move, I'm making a movie and it, it's art, right? It's not science, it's art. And so stealing some of the rigor from the science people to make my art more dependable was a very attractive idea to me. And I, I am not too proud to steal, steal things from them, even if I don't want to write functional languages. <laughs> and, and those things were, that was super hand, like that has, like I've tried to write I've, I've written a, a, a moderate amount, fair is too strong, a little bit of Elm. Like I spent a summer writing Elm. 
And that was really interesting to watch, like what my tendencies were, how easy it is to write bad OO in a functional language to like absolutely best. <laughs> like it was really hard to avoid my tendencies to do, try to, you know, I was trying to remake it in my own image. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I remember, you know, I took my, I would take my dog for walks and walk around the neighborhood thinking must, how can I do this by recursing over a list? How can I do this by recursing over a list? Like it, it just seemed impossible. Right. And I got better. I did get better at that, but it really took just absolutely refusing to follow my instincts. I mean, there's the only rules I knew, right? Like, right. Got to recurse over a list. <laughs> there must be some way to solve this problem. <laughs> but, and and in every, solves everything. Well, when I, you know, when I just insisted on treat dealing with, you know, operating, walking over lists to do things, like if I insisted on it, I always found a way, but it was often quite painful to figure out how. I mean, I'm, I'm really sympathetic to like the complaints that people, that OO programmers are going to functional and just writing bad functional by trying to make it do objects. Yeah, that would, that would be me. <laughs> and Scala to a degree too, I think. <laughs> but So what do you yeah. think that functional programming languages do better than object-oriented languages? I mean, hmm. well, the short answer would be I'm probably the not the right person to ask. The longer answer would be if I had a problem that was big, an app that was big that had a lot of concurrency where I needed to do, you know, many hundreds of thousands of tiny things very quickly. That was like, you know, where I had the threading issues. I would look at a functional language. I would look at Go or a functional language to do that. Like they're too slow, the dynamically typed stuff. And it's, and, or if I wanted, you know, for many years I worked at Duke University Medical Center and this is horrible. I'm going to say it on your podcast. We had this criteria that we would use about how careful we had to be about code. Because, you know, sometimes you can write pretty good code and, and let the phone ring if it's wrong. But when we were doing stuff that like involved the OR, our criteria would be, will babies die? If babies will die, if we do this, right? Or if rocket ships are going to blow up, right? I mean, it's really people will die would be the more probably palatable generic term for that. Right. And so, you know, there, if I had to really, really 100% know not only that it was going to work, but that no programmer could screw it up, I'm, and it was a matter of life and death, I probably wouldn't use Ruby. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because like the, the attitude of like, okay, it's dynamic. I pass anything in. I call the method. It doesn't do the right thing. It blows up. That's like a bit, it's a bit risky. You want like the assurance beforehand that everything's I mean, okay. Like I, yeah. I mean, I feel like I can write Ruby that's 100% reliable. It's like you don't know what's going to happen in the future. And if lives depended on it, I would want a language that was less fun and easy to write in. But, and you know, the functional languages, like, I don't know if, if all of them say this. I suspect they do. Certainly in, in Elm, it felt like if you could get it to compile, that it was going to work. Like it couldn't be wrong. <laughs> you could yeah. make it compile. Yeah. You got this much. You got this right? Much. And, and that's super interesting because that's not true at all in Ruby, right? Like lots of things will parse that won't execute. Right. Right? That are not going to work at runtime. But in those functional languages, I suspect, like, like, uh, like one of the things I noticed was how I felt comfortable writing many fewer tests. Mm, like using with a language with, with types and. Yeah, with a language with types because the, the compiler was acting like a unit 
tests for types. Right. Your contracts are there. Yeah. There are categories of tests that I write in Ruby to, to confirm that the con that the APIs are followed and the contracts exist and you don't have to do those. All right. I mean, the, the upside is in Ruby. I don't have to write all that down in the runtime code. So like new people can come in and read your Ruby code and understand what the app does by reading the code. And that can be impossible in those languages that are like, you know, Klingon with math. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's an interesting point about like kind of like cross pollinating, like kind of taking yourself out of the comfort zone and like going from a dynamic to a statically typed or from an object oriented to a functional language. Like there are totally ideas that exist in one paradigm or another that are valid and very useful, like immutability. That mm-hmm. you know, why not? Like just let's do that. Like let's I could just steal that. that. That would work. I could let's have not that. Have side effects. Side effects are awful. Let's get rid yeah. of them. Yeah. We don't yeah. Let's stop. Oh, well, I mean, it's exactly the same kind of thing that we were talking about in the last episode with like JavaScript letting you write over a method just by assign variable assignment. Like getting those the like all the languages come with a paradigm that expects you to behave in a certain way. And you know, we'll be unto you if you try to bend it. Like you can't really try to make JavaScript be like Java or Python or Elixir or Elm or whatever, right? Those are those are the most annoying programmers, right? The ones in your shop that want the language you're using to actually be a different language, <laughs> right? right? They're, they're and, doing surprising things. They're like, yeah, they're, exactly. They're being clever or like going outside the box, and it's like, no, it's, we have a nice box here. Please, stay yeah. Inside. It's like, dude, like you're here. Like you, if you don't use a language for its strengths, then all you get is its weaknesses. Right. Like don't buy a language and just have its weaknesses. So, I don't know. Like. Like, you know, there's a bunch of, you know, those books about like learn 12 languages in 12 weeks or whatever. Like there's a lot of people who spend a lot of time getting a really broad base of language, you know, getting exposed to lots of different things so that they can do some, get some gestalt of all the, you know, possible things that you might do. I would probably be better off if I did more of that. Every time I go away to another language, I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. And it sort of expands my, you know, thinking a little bit. And definitely the sort of treat object creation as free and do immutable objects. Like, like it changed my OO. Right. And I'm like, I like, and now when I'm teaching, I teach that. I tell people. Like, like you know, little people often don't do that, but they don't do it because they can't treat object creation as free because they have like 14,000 line objects. Right. Right. Like there's all kinds of other things wrong with how they're using the language that prevent them from adopting these techniques that would make everything even uh, more interchangeable and easier. Oh, interesting. So what trends have you seen in the industry? Like, do you think that people are moving away from OL and toward functional? Do you think that, you know, that's a a boogeyman that people have been talking about for decades and everybody's imagining it? Do you you think that it like comes in cycles? Like, what's your perspective? I'm I'm a cycle kind of person. Mm. Like, here's the thing, right? What do businesses want? They want the most function they can get for the least amount of money. And whatever languages can win that battle are going to survive in the long term. And so languages that, and maybe have a lot of support in the community. And so the functional languages, like most of them, they're super reliable, but they're hard for people to come in and read. If most of the cost of code is in the reading, then those there's a premium on reading those languages that don't tell you a story. And so, and again, I'm not I'm not the right person to ask, right? Because I love OO. 
I don't imagine, it, it feels to me like there's a place for everything and, and different problems need different solutions. And you're just trying to decide what you're willing to pay. Like what, what trade-offs do you want to make for the problem that you have? Right. Mm. Have you seen people moving away from Ruby? There were two different news articles I read that Google offered me in my feed because I read this stuff, right? So I did not pick these things. They got delivered to me from the big internet in the sky. I feel like I, I have some of those too, where it's like, I'm like Googling for Python. They're like, oh, you like Python? Python? <laughs> Here's some Python articles. You want these? Yeah, so like, oh, exactly. gosh. And so like on a Tuesday, I got an article that said, it was titled, I think the headline was like, five programming languages you should not learn in 2020. And Ruby was on that list. Whoa. This was on Tuesday. On Wednesday, I got a different article from a different like tech place that was like five programming languages you should definitely learn. And Ruby was on that <laughs> list. <laughs> All right. I mean, Ruby has never had, I don't know that they've ever, have they cracked 10% on any of those metrics ever? I don't think I could recall. Like even in the heyday of Rails. And so then the question is like, okay, all the cool kids are gone. Well, they are, right? And all the early adopters have moved on and early adopted something else. They they early adopted themselves away when Go came out or, you know, like that was two generations of software ago. I mean, the real question is, is a language like Ruby, like, is it worth learning? Is it worth knowing? Is it worth staying on? I don't really see it going away. I mean, I mean, I'm going to shut up in just a second. Here's the thing. Like you should know if you want to keep a job, if you want to stay employed, like I'm 62 years old. I've been programming. I've been living in this business since I was 20. I've been writing code for a living. I started out writing COBOL. You know, I wrote a little Fortran. I wrote a little whatever that language we used on the IBM mainframes, right? I was good at DOS once, right? Like all the things that happened before probably most people listening were born. Like I did them all and I'm still here today. And how do you stay... How do you make yourself so that you catch the next wave well enough to stay employed? I mean, you can't follow every fad. And really, right? All you need is like, you need, you need to understand how dynamic OO works. You probably need to understand how static OO works. Probably need to know Shell's language. And a little bit about Bash or whatever, right? You probably need to be able to script some things. You probably need to know a little functional whatever functional language you choose. And for me now, I'm just like, well, I don't know. It's like just syntax. Yeah. <laughs> like why leave Ruby when it's just syntax and I could just get a job doing something else. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe, maybe that. No, I, I, I think, I think that's true to definitely like it, that resonates with me a lot because like, like being a consultant and kind of like not entirely having the choice of the language that you're next going to be working in. Like you're kind of, you have to adopt that mindset where, okay, like today I'm a Ruby engineer and, you know, next month I'm a front-end React engineer and next month I'm a Python engineer. Uh, you know, obviously not with such rapid changes, but, you know, like it kind of like encourages you to be a little, a little bit more plastic. And not so dogmatic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, we have our preferences, but that doesn't make them the one right answer. It's your favorite answer, though. <laughs> I do love Ruby. <laughs> <laughs> easy Ruby is great. Easy to read. Yeah. I mean, I, I started out programming in Java and then was introduced to Ruby later in life and asked myself, like, why didn't I learn Ruby first? Mm -hmm. It is a nice language. 
to read. How, how did you learn Java? Did you learn at school or did you I learned learn it in school? And I learned it in school and then I got a job in Java. And then I've been OO since. But you, it was it was Java, then I went to Ruby. Do you feel like you have to sort of, you know, represent and defend Ruby as like kind of a maybe the arguably the most developer famous Rubyist at the moment? Well, okay, that's a Again, I'm going to beg that question. <laughs> I mean, people people seem to assume that I have some inside track on the f- not what's going to happen, knowledge of what's going to happen in the future, which I do not. So I get asked a lot by people who are, think want to write Ruby but are afraid they ought to be moving on. And so I sort of keep up with the stats. And it goes up and down. I mean, yeah, I don't feel like I need to defend it. I mean, here's the thing. I wrote, it was many, many years. I'd written Ruby a long time before I wrote Ruby longer than I wrote Smalltalk. You know, if I had my way, we'd all be writing Smalltalk. Are you going to be releasing 99 balls of Smalltalk? Smalltalk? It does not feel like there's an audience for that book. (laughs) 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 I mean, but Smalltalk is, you know, I I mean, the conversation we had about like how the, the way a language works teaches your brain how to think about what how to solve a problem like everything i know about oh i learned from writing small talk Mm. and then ruby let me do that let me express myself the way i wanted to express myself because it's just like small talk only a little it's a little i I mean it's not as perfect as small talk (laughs) but it's, it's pretty good it's pretty good right like i'm very happy in ruby and so (laughs) <laughs> it, I don't know. Just, <laughs> so, like I mean, like small talk lives on, right? Like it, it influenced. Yeah, but it's so not many. really. It did. It influ- It in influence. It does. Yeah. Right but, now, I'm worried that Ruby is going to go the way small talk did, and you're going to be stuck with Node. Uh, I mean, you know where I would go right now? I'd go to JavaScript. Yeah. I would die. I would go full on a JavaScript, and I'd figure out all the things I wanted to know about it. And and because I, I think you can write really good OO in JavaScript. And so if you could manage to get aligned with people who had OE problems that you could solve in JavaScript, mm-hmm. yeah, why not? And it, that language is just getting better and better, right? I mean, it's like every language, it's got like history, it's got backward compatibility stuff that it has to deal with. Like there are certainly probably decisions they might make differently now, but who knows? I don't know. Maybe the, the designers... I, I, think, I think the most wild thing about JavaScript is the fact that like you can just plug and play with language features that are not even approved yet. They're just <laughs> wildest fantasies <laughs> and you can just web pack them into existence. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. like, well, maybe we'll have a like optional chaining operator <laughs> in, you know, in 2020, or you could have it today just by putting this plug in. Okay, great. Thanks. Bye. I, okay. I'm old enough and have had so many problems maintaining it. Like, like, porting applications to new releases of the supporting software that what you just said terrifies me. <laughs> <laughs> My first thought was, well, who's going to fix that later when it doesn't really come through? <laughs> I mean, that's fair. I mean, there's, there's definitely like arguments for tempered optimism <laughs> yeah. with yeah. the possibilities of Webpack. But like, I mean, I remember I, I went to PyCon recently and they're, they're like, uh, Python 4.0, maybe we should consider transpiling. Like, because Python 3 was like a huge train wreck and like mm-hmm. changed and nobody wanted to be there, but eventually they came around and now it's good. But, you know, JavaScript will never have that problem because mm-hmm. like, yeah. choose yeah, yeah. whichever target platform they want and they just live there forever. 
Yeah. Either we're just wrong and probably shouldn't be programming, or there's a language that we're going to love. Can you guys imagine not being able to find a language? No matter what, like if every language that you're aware of today went out of style and disappeared, is it conceivable that there wouldn't be some language that would just be the coolest thing ever? <laughs> impossible. <laughs> it's impossible. Yeah. So it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Just do what you like and like pay attention, learn new things, but don't get, to, don't get sidetracked by the news because that's all it is. Yeah. <laughs> Comes and Get goes. Getting those clicks. <laughs> I, I, totally, I totally look at those articles and you, you've algorithmically decided to serve this article to me because I'm going to click on it and then I click on it. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, that's how they get I accept my fate. <laughs> I have that same thing. I'm just encouraging you, Google. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I go into incognito mode to read them. <laughs> just to make sure that I get your impression. <laughs> just to try not to get them fed more to me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Google knows all. Throw off the trail. <laughs> so how do we get as developer famous as you, Sandy? Well, okay. So there's, do, why don't you define what developer famous is? <laughs> so to, for the layman. <laughs> for to, to me, it seems like kind of the perfect kind of fame because, you know, you have a community where you can play the celebrity. Everybody loves you. You can, you know, make a lot of money and have a lot of impact on people. But at the same time, when you go to the grocery store, nobody is there snapping photos of you. Like you can be out in public. There's no paparazzi. It sounds kind of great. Is that what it's like? Is that what oh, oh, yeah. Just like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. I want to first take issue with the make a lot of money that we wish. Like it's hard for me to even talk about this, as you can tell, because I've like stuttered four times already and I haven't seen anything. <laughs> I'll fix it in post. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> because what is it? Like who's, are you special? Am I special? Because I don't feel special. I'm just like a schmuck, right? Like I love, <laughs> like, like I paid attention and we tried to learn and I'm better at things than I used to be. And I, you know, the one thing it's, it's so true. Like when I go to conferences, Certain conferences, not all conferences, because I go to some conferences and no one has any idea who I am. But there's an, there are certain, you know, Ruby conference we want, Ruby or Rails or even the PHP conferences. I can't walk down the hall and get to the bathroom. Like I can't even walk around because people want to say hi to me and get selfies taken with me. And that is a very weird role to play. And that's exactly what it feels like. And I'm not complaining. Because it feels like an, such an honor. I, like, I feel so buoyed up by the esteem of people that I worked really hard at trying to produce something for that would be useful. And the fact that they found it useful is incredibly rewarding. Mm. It's really wonderful. And, but it's also not real at all. Now, I don't, I don't want to seem like I'm complaining about people. It, it, well, you, you know that thing where you go to a conference and all the famous people are standing in a little circle and they're having a conversation in the hall and, and you wish you can hear them. And it seems like they all, these all seem really smart and funny and you wish you were part of that circle, but there's no way to get in it. This oh, literally happened like- to me with you. I spoke at a conference <laughs> that you were speaking at and you were at the cool kids table with a DHH. Dang it. I, okay, wait. I would never I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't remember ever being at a table with DHH. Was uh, I really? 
I think it was, uh, yeah, I think huh. it was. Uh, um, I don't ever remember talking to him at that table with me. Maybe, maybe you guys were at adjacent tables, and I was maybe. both of them. It was in Atlanta. Like, either one's fine. <laughs> it was at RailsConf 2014 in Atlanta. Well, it's I, that it's that thing where it's a long time ago, but I was starstruck. Oh. I remember, I remember, like, being, oh man, I really want to talk to Sandy Metz. Yeah, I mean, here's the th- here's what we know, right? You should just go talk to those people because, oh, well, let me just say this: like, I, I tried with DHA. Hey, she would not give me the time. Yeah. Well, I would like. I feel keenly my obligation to be what people. Again, the language is really hard here. Like, there's a way in which I represent your best self, right? I represent your aspiration, and it's not really me. It's the fact that people don't really know me, and they've just read the book, and there's that level of isolation, which makes me seem like smart and other. And so, there's a way in which. That people want to be told their own story. They want to be reassured that they're smart. They want to be, feel like there's a, they have a place in the world. And there's a way in which the slot that you put like an author in, like you've cast, the authors get cast in that role. I, I believe this to be true because I cast other authors into that role. Hmm. Like the duct like, tape for the author. Yeah, the duct tape <laughs> for the author, right? Like there's a woman named Rebecca Wurfsbrock who, Someone knew and she reviewed Pooter and I had read her books and she, I bless her, she wrote me a couple emails like she was trying to be sort of friendly and I couldn't even talk to her. Like I was so starstruck. Like I couldn't, like, like I, I was afraid that she felt like I didn't like her, right? Because <laughs> I was like, da, 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 right? I mean, so I can't, like I know how that feels on the other side. Most of my interactions with authors are that way. And then I became one and I saw people starting to do it to me. And so then, you, then from this side of the fence, as you guys will all know, when you write your own books, <laughs> then what you have to do is be super kind. You have to treat people the way you wish you you would want to be treated yourself. As biblical as that sounds, I know. Uh, one of the rules of thumb that I really appreciated from PyCon this year, I, I hadn't heard it before, but they're like, okay, if you're in the in the conference or the uh, the hallway track as they call it, like you're just chatting with people Mm -hmm. in the hallway. Like if you're forming a circle as Mm -hmm. one does the optimal shape for just having a a conversation, just keep it open and you know, have room for one more person. I'm super conscious of that when I'm out, like I'm always leaving that space and looking for people who are hovering Mm. because I hovered and never found a way to get in. And now like the great thing, okay, so this is the ultimate answer to your question, William, about being developer famous. Like what I have now is power to make things be the way I want them to be. And that means that there's always room in the circle for people to join us. That means that no one can be mean in the comments of your blog post because I will mallet you in a heartbeat. (laughs) (laughs) Like we're not, like we're we're making, I I get to make the world I want because people want to talk to Internet Sandy now. And so that means I can like set the boundaries for how that, how collegial and friendly and, and safe that conversation is. And that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a superpower right there. Yeah. That's yeah. like a, Internet Sandy is a superhero. You gotta love that. <laughs> I'm sold. So uh, I need to write a book and then I'll be developer famous. Mm-hmm. Uh, Just like that. <laughs> it does seem though like you can't, it has to be a good book, right? You can't just write a book. You write the book you wish someone had given you when you were younger. That's a good. That's what one. I wrote, right? You write the book. Like, if you know anything now that you didn't used to know, and this is for everybody, right? Do you know something now you didn't used to know? Well, the answer to that is pretty much always yes. 
then write that book. And tone matters, right? You're explaining it to your younger self who is doesn't know very much, but is eager and motivated and wants to learn. Like they're not stupid. They're just ignorant, right? They're young. And so that tone really matters. Super interesting, right? It does. Like people know if you're condescending to them. And so don't be condescending. People love it. It's, very, it's been very gratifying, I have to say. Like I'm a little dyslexic, so I don't, it's, writing is really torturous for me. And so it was, made it all worthwhile. I didn't think anybody would ever read it. And then people did. <laughs> How cool is that? That's awesome. Yeah. Pretty, pretty dope. I think That's I'm still bad. too young to write this book. Time <laughs> <laughs> will happen. Little baby William. Baby <laughs> Williams. <laughs> awesome. Sandy, how can people contact you? I am at S-A-N-D-I-M-E-T-Z, Sandy Metz on Twitter. And there's I have a website, sandymetz.com. There's all kinds of ways to get in touch with me there. So awesome. Do that. Hey. Reach out. So, yeah. And uh, you have uh, 99 bottles uh, for sale with the... Second edition coming it's soon. Second edition coming soon. You can reach out. You can, if you just come to my website and go to the content tab, you can navigate right to a place where you can get it. Follow us now on Twitter at Radio Free Rabbit so we can keep the conversation going. Like what you hear? Give us a five-star review and help developers just like you find their way into the rabbit hole. And never miss an episode. Subscribe now however you listen to your favorite podcast. On behalf of our producer extraordinaire, William Jeffries, and my amazing co-host, Dave Anderson, and me, your host, Michael Nunez, thanks for listening to The Rabbit Hole.